Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the boss of the World Health Organization is offering optimism about a vaccine for COVID-19. How come? The vice presidential debate is taking place tonight. Is this the first time we've even talked about a vice presidential debate? Why? Canada is now accepting pro-democracy Hong Kong activists as refugees. Should the other 300,000 Canadians there join them? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Guitar great Eddie Van Halen has passed away. All this weekend, guys my dad's age will be crying while playing air guitar, bloated on jerky, and sonic. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott! Yeah. I'm not sure that was a tribute. Was that a tribute? I think it was to Eddie, but a slag to Dad. No? Anybody else kind of sad? Is it me? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes as he has for uh, 30, we- uh, 30 weeks and three days and 12 hours. And 11 minutes. And in, in 42 seconds. Don't quote me on that. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. What a weird day. Kind of started out rainy, then it got sunny, and uh, yeah, we'll take it. What the heck? Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. It starts on the website. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. As well, the phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. And don't forget about Facebook and Twitter. You will find the podcast edition of the commentary there talking about uh, Eddie Van Halen, something non-COVID. Although it's not really a positive story, is it? But at least now uh, we can celebrate the music of Eddie Van Halen. It gives an excuse to do that. Well, let's take that. We'll take anything right about now. You know, I'm watching. I'm sitting here in my home office and I'm watching, uh, you know, uh, news nets and this and all the news sources and stuff. And this morning it's here's the hysteria. What are we going to do about Thanksgiving? What are we going to do about Thanksgiving? How are we going to get through Thanksgiving? And I'm thinking, like, really? Do you not know what to do this Thanksgiving? Have you heard not heard what the officials and politicians have said? Have you not gauged what fits well out of that information for your family? Because not every family is the same. Everybody's different. So what works for one may not work for the other. But is there anybody out there that, oh, my God, the mixed messaging on Thanksgiving. What are we going to do? We don't know whether to invite Granny or not. What do we do with Uncle Harry and Aunt Nancy? I'm not sure. <laughs> Get a grip, people. Get a grip. They want you to reduce the size of your circle and keep it as small as possible, especially during Thanksgiving. That's within your household. Now, your household may only be two people, three people, four people. Your household could be 12 people. But, oh, no, that's over the 10-person indoor limit. We better put put two members of the family out on the front porch for the rest of the pandemic. Like, my goodness, people. Do you expect the premier and the prime minister to wipe your rear ends? You've been given the information. My wife's shutting my office doors. She doesn't want to hear it. Uh, you know, you've been given this information and, you know, you take the information and you apply it 
to your family. You know, if you've got two or three or four and you can bring one in who's all alone and you know the background and where they're from and they're safe, you can do it. It's common sense. But it's like you're waiting for the premier or the prime minister to tell you who can come over for Thanksgiving dinner. That's stupid. It's a collective effort. There is no right answer here. But there is information. There is a way to educate yourself. There is a way to find out what's going on. And then you you digest that and you apply it to your own situation, which is different from your neighbors and the person across the road or hall. Now, interesting in all of this, the World Health Organization is offering optimism as the pandemic rolls onward, saying that there could be a vaccine potentially by the end of the year. Now, does that mean in the arms of you and I or or what? what? Let's bring in Tom Koch, professor of medical geography at the University of British Columbia and has authored many books on this issue uh, and is with us now. Tom, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, well, that was quite a rant. <laughs> I know it was. Do you want to grade me on that, Tom? Was I off base? If people are concerned about Thanksgiving, think about what they did in, for Easter when this was much clearer to everybody. Uh, and the fact is people are getting antsy, they're getting hopeful, partly because there's talk about a vaccine. And just remember that at Easter you had no problem figuring out how to reduce the size of the table and how to meet with people safely and do it again. There you go. You know what? Yeah, you explained it perfectly. Uh, Thanksgiving equals Easter. Very good point. Yeah. Um, lots of chatter about uh, a vaccination. Obviously, we've heard lots of that coming out of the President of the United States. Now the WHO, uh, boss of the World Health Organization, is saying that uh, it's possible by the end of the year. What does that mean? Does that mean a vaccination? Does that mean a vaccination that's ready to go into arms? Can you decode this in any way? Sure. I can give well. I can decode it as well as anybody can. I am not, I suspect that one reason why the folks at the WHO are being mildly optimistic is because Trump has been so ridiculously uh, assertive in insisting that they are trying not to pick a battle with Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. And certainly he is no friend of the WHO. We have also seen an unprecedented, never seen before, rush to try and develop a vaccine for a tricky kind of virus, a retrovirus, in a record amount of time. And there has been a lot of progress, progress which three months ago I would have said never could have been made towards that end. So is it possible that by December 31st, there will be a vaccine which has gone through enough testing to seem as if it will be able to be effective when given to stop uh, people from getting COVID. It is possible. I suspect that there will be a proof in principle. I suspect there will be candidates, but I don't think they will be ready for distribution. The process of approving a vaccine once it, it has been chosen and shown to be uh, moderately safe, that is, that taking it will not cause other horrible things, goes through a series of tests. And those are absolutely critical to make sure, one, that they don't have bad effects, and two, that they are effective. 
And that is going on now, stage two, and some of them in stage three, in several spots in the world. But even once we have a vaccine that we think will be at least moderately effective, and there's two or three different types of vaccine, and that it will not be harmful, that is, it won't, your toes won't fall off because you took it, then what we have to do is it has to be patented, manufacturing has to be ramped up, and then a whole series of questions on distribution, globally, nationally, and locally, have to be have to be set upon. So is it likely that there may be a vaccine which looks like it will work by the end of the year? It's possible. Is it likely that you'll be able to queue on up uh, sometime around Boxing Day and get it? Very unlikely. So if that is the case and it is available, as you said, and hits that uh, December 31 timeline, how long before in the arm? Well, some people are saying by next summer. But I also think that a lot of our fascination with the idea of the vaccine is wholly misdirected. What What we will have in six weeks is not at all pertinent given the spikes in incidents which we are seeing in Ontario and across in and in Quebec and in all of our major cities at the moment. The real issue is not will we have a vaccine which can go into our arm by December or by Easter or by the summer solstice. The question is, in the interim, what will we be able to do to decrease the number of cases which are occurring now and in the coming weeks, and to assure the best treatment for those who, for one reason or another, are getting the disease. So being able to look to the vaccine as a way to sort of not look at the much messier type of thing, which is really the question of what to do for Thanksgiving and what to do while we're thinking about Christmas and what to think about, hey, in January, will I be able to go to Florida or to Cuba or to wherever you like to go in January? So I, people really needn't – the vaccine is the far-off answer. And even if we get the vaccine, will enough people take it to create an immunity when we know that, what is it, only 60% of the people get a flu vaccine? That's a very valid point, Tom. And my next question, like there's all kinds of talk right now about vaccine. We need a vaccine. I mean, it's like as if everybody, as soon as this is announced, is going to run to the lineup and roll up the sleeve. Will there be as much chatter about getting this vaccine as there has been about developing it? Uh, It will be different chatter. Remember that when we developed the polymyelitis vaccines, uh, there were two of them, if you'll remember, back in the 50s. And those were school programs, and everybody, there wasn't any question. People were very desirous of getting it. We now have this strange anti-vax movement, and we now have people who aren't getting the flu vaccine for no other reason than they don't trust the vaccine. And every year I've got seniors I take care of who I see in October, Freddie, let's go get a flu vaccine. And Freddie says, I'm 84 years old. I never got the flu. I don't need that. (laughs) <laughs> I say, well, Freddie, you're 84 years old. You have uh, uh, obstructive uh, pulmonary disease. Uh, you have hypertension and diabetes. I think this is the year for you to get it. Oh, I don't need that from you, you young fellow. 
<laughs> and so then I say, okay, Freddie, it's your choice. I just thought I'd make the suggestion. And I call Freddie in February or late January. I say, Freddie, I haven't heard from you. How are you doing? And Freddie says, oh, <laughs> uh. oh, Freddie, a bit of the flu, do we? Oh, no, I never get flu. I'm sure it's just a cold. Uh, one can be as absolutely uh, dumb at the age of 84 as one can be at the age of 14. Hmm. Um, should people get the flu vaccine? Absolutely, for two reasons. One, a compounding of influenza and SARS-CoV-2 together will not be a pleasant experience. Two, if you get the flu, if you get influenza and you have respiratory difficulties, that will lower your, um, your immune system's ability to fight another incursion. So you will be probably more likely at that point, if exposed, to pick up SARS-CoV-2, uh, COVID-19. Three, the reason to get it is because it is a very, very safe vaccine. This is supposed to be a milder flu than last year, but it could still create all of these other problems. And the more people who get it, the less likely we will have two epidemics running rampant at once. That's the herd effect. So for all those reasons, and because we pay for it, you don't have to pay for it. You, can, you know, it's going to be at your pharmacy and at the Walmart and the shoppers. You, for yourself and for those around you and the community at large, you would be well advised to get the flu vaccine. What about the comments and what has happened over the last couple of days in regard to the president of the United States uh, then coming home and, and the message he is sending now? <clears throat> well, I suppose I should diplomatically say that the message that he sends at best is ignorant when it's not wholly conflicted. And we could see on TV the other night when he was talking, and he all of a sudden developed uh, some clear respiratory uh, uh, effects. Mm -hmm. So he was not speaking well. You could see where his breathing altered in it. The fact is that the man's an idiot. Uh, on the basis of nothing but his own wishes and his insistence on a political message, he has endangered himself and others. He's not out of the woods yet. And we could see that, basically, if you knew what to watch for. So why are we paying attention to this guy? Why are we not just basically saying he knows nothing about what he is speaking in this area? And let us just discount whatever he has to say uh, and look to the voices of people who know something a little more. Because he has himself had COVID does not mean that he has learned from the experience. He's like Freddie, my 84-year-old. Hmm. Boris Johnson, who had been rather dismissive of COVID before he ended up in the ICU, changed his tune afterwards. Uh, Mr. Trump is incapable of doing that. So I'm just saying, why are, we, why are we even asking about his message when we know that his message is founded on nothing but his own imagination? Good point. Um, many have talked about how with COVID-19, uh, the real issue comes in the second stage of this, you know, perhaps day six, seven, eight, in and around there. What can you tell us about that? And, and th does the president uh, have a strong chance of relapsing here? We don't know. 
We, we do know that the course of the disease, depending on the treatment, depending on the person, we know that <clears throat> the infection rate runs from 2 to 14 days. We know that there are some patients who, after early difficulty, will seem to be able to kick it off, and then after a certain period, it will resurge and manifest in a much more virulent fashion. We know that President Trump... Uh, has not only Walter Reed Hospital at his disposal, but a medical team in the White House, which will be watching him very carefully. We know that he's on remetosphere and on, um, on, on, on steroids, both of which uh, should be fairly effective in moderating symptoms. But w- can we expect him all of a sudden to have a relapse of some significance? It's possible. But again, my question is, Really, why should we care? Mm, yeah. uh, he gets, he, the man has been lucky so far. He will, at the, at the, first, at, at the first evidence of a relapse, on the drugs he's on, they will have him back in hospital, they will have him back on oxygen. And who really, it really, why are we wasting our time? Are you concerned that he is spreading? Well, obviously he's been a spreader, and he's, but more importantly, he's created spreading events. Mm-hmm. Um, am I concerned? Uh, my sympathies rarely run to the members of the general military staff and to the general White House staff. Um, I, I would think that some of them should have just said, hey, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going home, Jack. Uh, Mr. President, this is just wrong. Uh, and then they would have been out. You know, I suspect that people like Fauci have been sidelined precisely for those reasons. Mm-hmm. But he, he exemplifies somebody who pays no attention to the best evidence, the best data we have from years of working with epidem- uh, epidemiology. He has said, as he has said with uh, global warming, he doesn't believe in science. He doesn't believe it knows. He doesn't trust it. That's because he doesn't read it and he doesn't want to understand it. He's like uh, a fourth grader says, I don't you know, need that algebra. Yeah. Uh, I know how to add two, four, and six. Two and four is six, and six is 13. So <laughs> I see no reason why we should really... Is he creating super spreader events? Probably. Do we know that he has created in the White House, certainly by the number of people there who are now testing positive? Uh, why are we paying attention to ignorance? Tom Koch has been with us, professor of medical geography at the University of British Columbia and author of several books on the subject, including Disease Maps, Epidemics on the Ground. Tom, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. I hope this helped. Always does. Thank you, Tom. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Eddie Van Halen passed away, 65, from cancer. Uh, Let's bring in Alan Cross, music journalist and internationally known broadcaster. He's with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. So far, so good, yes. You know, it's interesting, Alan. Uh, A few weeks ago when we were in the height of the pandemic, I was talking to a music store owner because there was articles on how the guitar was increasing in popularity during the pandemic and more sales were there and also lessons. Obviously, there was a time when in pop music, guitar was, was king, not so much now. Has this recognition of Eddie Van Halen generated more interest in this instrument? I think it's going to ultimately. There's been a lot of press about Eddie's passing, and I think that with 
platforms like TikTok, and we saw, of course, with uh, Mick Fleetwood and Fleetwood Mac and Dreams and this thing that happened over the last week, that a lot of young people discover music this weirdly organic way. I think we're going to see an awful lot of, of Eddie stuff and Van Halen stuff bubble up. Whenever somebody famous like this dies, ultimately, you know, we always see streams go up, and we also see downloads go up. We also see sales go up. So, I, I would not be surprised at all to see a resurgence in uh, Van Halen music, especially songs that really, really focus on 80s guitar playing. Will we see music make a resurgence in pop music? Will we see guitar playing, rather? It might be. It might. Well, we'll see. Um, I think so. Um, again, guitar sales and popularity of guitar playing has been on an upward trajectory recently and something like this i mean every time i've done an interview like this somebody has played eruption from the first album and that's mm. got to get some people excited about what can be done with an electric guitar has to uh is where does he fit on the list of greats and i'm sure you're prepared for this oh, question boy. but everybody immediately wants to say okay where do they fit in where do they fit in and i remember one time there's and, and this could be even wrong you would know this alan but somebody asked eric clapton what's it what it's like to be the best guitar player in the world and he said i don't know ask prince uh where does where does eddie van halen fit in this list that's a really good question uh i think it depends on who you are how old you are and where you were when you heard van halen for the very first time I was in my teens when I heard Van Halen and for uh, from that first record, and uh, Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page were good, but they were before my time. If they didn't have, you know, they were always good. They were always great. They were always revered. But Eddie was sort of almost one of us, and I'm speaking of people of my generation. He was a guitar god that came up as we were in that sweet spot of music discovery between the ages of like 13 and 23. And uh, you, you would probably glom on to him. I mean, I did. Uh, I, and I considered him to be my favorite you know, guitarist of that era and maybe one of the greatest guitarists of all time, which, which is not taking anything away from Clapton or, or Hendrix or, or Jimmy Page or, or uh, Jeff Beck or any of the great guitarists in the past. It's just that Eddie appeared when I needed him, and I kept him close uh, from then on. You bring up a valid point here, Alan. Is this very much like sport figures? Because many people will compare, like, say, for example, hockey players, one generation to the other. Is it impossible to compare eras? The same thing that, with guitar that, players. You know what? That is a great uh, analogy. Yeah. I mean, there are people that tell me the Gordie Howe, greatest of all time. Nobody's ever going to be yeah. able to Gordie Howe. Or Maurice Richard, or Bobby Orr, or Wayne Gretzky, or Sidney Crosby. I mean, take your pick. It all depends on, on your perspective. And again, these guys are all playing at different times in, in the game. You know, the game has evolved. Uh, rock and roll had evolved by the time Eddie Vedder came along because the guys that we were talking about previously, um, Page, um, Clapton, Beck, and so on, they came out of the 60s. Eddie was younger, he came out of the 70s. And in one of the things that he is, he was using technology uh, yeah. right from the beginning that was unavailable to these older guys. So he was building his own guitars. He was, you know, he had, all the foot pedals had been had been invented by that time. All the big amplifiers had been invented by that time. Remember when Jimmy Page was was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old? There was no such thing as a big, powerful Marshall stack. Yeah. It just didn't exist. There were no there there were foot pedals, but I mean, you might have had a big buff distortion pedal, and that's it. You know, Eddie had a whole lot more to work with. Uh, Eddie was also much more interested in tearing apart guitars and rebuilding them and turning it into something that could make sounds that no other guitar could make. Mm. These other guys you know, would modify their guitars a little bit, but not to the extent that Eddie did. Uh, that red and white guitar 
the Frankenstein guitar, is yeah. not a model of any guitar. He put that together himself using bits and pieces. And as a result, he ended up with a, to- a tone and a sound and a texture of the guitar that nobody else could get. Uh, and, you know, com- c- uh, combine that with the talent, the innate talent that the guy had. Uh, wow. I mean, again, he's, he's my guy because he's from, from my era. All right, uh, another person passing away, another musician, Johnny Nash, very much influential in, in uh, reggae, crossing over into pop music. Only got about a minute left. Your thoughts on the passing of Johnny Nash? You know, I can see clearly that was one of those great songs. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it shows the ability of a great melody to transport you into a different place, no matter how badly you're feeling. Uh, whenever that song comes on... Um, I, 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 once we, it just makes me feel good, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's, that's just a, an amazing thing. Alan Cross has been with us, music journalist, of course, talking about the passing of Eddie Van Halen and Johnny Nash as well. Alan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. All right, let's move on. Uh, tonight, uh, must see TV if you're a political head like I am. Uh, and, and, you know, even though it's another country, my goodness, uh, the world is going to watch the vice presidential debate taking place tonight, uh, between Vice President Pence and, uh, Kamala Harris, who is, uh, Joe Biden's running mate. And, and, you know, I can't even remember, other than there's a vice presidential debate tonight, I can't ever remember spending this much time talking about a debate regarding the vice presidency. Usually it's the president and uh, and the opponent, not the vice presidents, uh, the people that are running for vice president. But uh, it's certainly different this time out. Let's bring in Saladin Ambar, senior scholar at the Eagleton Center on the American Governor, associate professor of political science at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and is with us now. Saladin, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me so much. Appreciate it. Uh, I, as I said earlier on, I don't even remember such attention being paid to a vice presidential debate before. Is that accurate? And, and why so much this time out? Well, I think there's, there's a great deal of truth to that. I mean, let's face it, that last debate was an unmitigated disaster as far as uh, decorum and civility and um, decency and any other you know, adjective you want to throw in there. So, uh, you know, I think people will be tuning in, A, just to see if, uh, you know, similar fireworks will, will go off. I doubt it, but um, just out of curiosity. But I think more importantly, people will be looking at both of these candidates for the vice presidency as potential 2024 candidates, people who, um, you know, they may know a little bit about, but uh, may be thinking about uh, down the road, given Biden's age and given the, the, the real prospect that, uh, uh, Trump won't be reelected or uh, be able to uh, pursue uh, office again in 2024. So a lot of a lot of insights to be had, perhaps, into who, who these two people are tonight. You bring up a valid point, and it was one of my other questions, was, is this because uh, both candidates are quite old? So, uh, again, I mean, I, I think even Biden has alluded to the fact that if he doesn't make it all the way through, that Harris is there for him. Is that another reason, that the fact that these candidates are both, uh, both north of 70? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, people are pretty perceptive. They, they know the, uh, the actuary charts, uh, what, what they read like, so... Um, but I also think, you know, Kamala Harris is a historic figure, uh, African-American woman, uh, black woman, you know, of, uh, of South Asian descent. Uh, she, she's interesting in her own right. And, um, you know, that's that's an important milestone uh, for for American politics. I think there'll be some curiosity about her. 
Uh, and again, I think uh, Republicans and conservatives will be looking at, at Mike Pence to see uh, the degree to which he veers from Trump, however slightly that may be, and seeks to maybe lay out a, a case for himself as the, the next standard bearer of the party. So a lot of intrigue, and certainly that first debate just, uh, you know, was riveting for all the wrong reasons, but it, it created enough conversation where I think people will be tuning in tonight. As you said, many, many uh, surprised that it went as far as it did uh, for the last debate, turning into the train wreck that it did. How will the vice presidential debate be different than the first debate? Will it be less aggression, more policy related? Well, I think so. Uh, goodness, I mean, I think, you know, Kamala Harris will be the kind of prosecutor that, uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, wants her to be to prosecute the case against Donald Trump. I think she'll be perhaps maybe more Columbo than Johnny Cochran. She'll, you know, be a little uh, softer around the edges, um, recognizing that for the American people, for many Americans anyway, and, and people around the world, this will be their first real look at her uh, as a candidate and as a person. And so I, I don't think she will be as harsh. The case against the president will be harsh, but I don't think she will necessarily present it other than with a smile and, and, and with, uh, you know, a, a sense of uh, gravitas that the situation calls for. Uh, on the other hand, I think uh, Mike Pence is a very different kind of animal than, than President Trump, uh, uh, not to state the obvious. He's quite avuncular and soft and he's got this, uh, you know, a background in radio, uh, sort of like Ronald Reagan. He presents himself uh, as, uh, you know, the, the hallmark of, of decency and kindness. <laughs> uh, and, you know, many people who, who disagree with his politics would suggest otherwise. But that's his presentation. He is not a rabble rousing orator or speaker. He's, uh, you know, presents a, a kinder, gentler um, display of conservatism, if you will, even if the policies don't always quite match that. Uh, lots of chatter about Harris's ability, obviously being a former cro a prosecutor and such, and, and obviously no slouch. That being said, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Pence has a very different style than what the president has, almost uh, tries to be a, a very calming kind of figure. How do you think this duel between Harris and Pence is going to go? I think it'll be civil. I think there'll be lots of uh, attacks uh, from Harris on, on Pence and on Trump. Uh, but I also think he'll, you know, he, as I mentioned, he, he is very deft at, uh, you know, denying um, policies, frankly, uh, you know, stating mistruths. Um, look for the line, you know, that's just not so. Um, you know, that's a line he's crafted well over these nearly four years. Uh, and I think, uh, it's his way of deflecting and, frankly, dodging the truth about any number of issues. Uh, but it's effective for him uh, because he seems so appalled and so dismayed that you would dare, um, you know, uh, argue that, well, you know, there was ch a child separation policy or that, you know, uh, they played down the virus or any number of issues. He has a real, uh, you know, home homey way of... Uh, of circumventing, you know, uh, you know, difficult questions. And I look for that. Um, and he may come out of the debate um, fairly likable. Uh, so I will be curious to see how Kamala Harris handles the way he handles those kinds of questions. If she'll follow up and say, you know, hey, you, you don't give me that, uh, you know, kind Uncle Mike business. Uh, how, you know, let's let's talk more realistically about the policy. So that'll be interesting to see her counter to the counterpunch. 
So obviously we won't, we'll probably won't see the, the aggression and obviously Pence certainly capable, capable of disarming that. So will this become a debate of fact checking? One says one thing, one says another, and it's up to you to figure out who's telling the truth. Right. I think that's the world we've been in now for some time. And I, I expect that to continue. Um, and I think. Harris, though, will probably save the media a lot of trouble because I think she's likely to do a lot of fact checking on her own. And uh, I don't expect her to veer, uh, you know, far from the truth. Uh, but, you, you know, it's hard to say um, uh, what tasks the fact checkers will have on her front. But I, I expect her to be uh, pretty much prosecuting the Trump case uh, rather than, uh, you know, veering too far afield and getting herself into trouble with the facts. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think um, we're in an era now where everything rightly needs to be checked and double checked uh, and, and in real time. Uh, they said that part of Biden's strategy with the presidential debate was that he wasn't going to play fact checker. Will that change now? Uh, I think so with, with Kamala Harris. I, I would really be surprised if she lets Pence off the hook with, uh, you know, those uh, just not so asides. I think she will really seek to tie him to Trump and and follow up and follow through. I think dispositionally, she and Biden are probably different figures in that way. You know, Biden is historically more of a consensus builder, kind of centrist. Uh, I think she she will go after uh, Pence uh, if, should he seek to, um, you know, avoid some of those charges that I anticipate uh, will, will fall his way. Um, and I also think historically it's the role of the vice president to be, you know, a, a bit of the, you know, uh, velvet glove, uh, you know, w- with the iron inside, <laughs> uh, whatever, apartment, whatever the metaphor is. But uh, she's going to be tough. I think she's going to have to. I think what her challenge may be is finding a way to be tough while uh, doing so with a smile. And, and that is a real uh, art in politics. Uh, but I think she's more than up to the task. Saladin Ambar has been with us, senior scholar at the Eagleton Center on the American Governor, Associate Professor of Political Science, Rutgers University. Saladin, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Likewise. Enjoy the debate. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The ongoing struggles between Canada and China and their uh, slowly deteriorating relationship with the uh, kidnapping of the two Michaels uh, held for hostage at this point right now uh, as we have the Huawei CFO uh, waiting for extradition to the United States in Vancouver. Uh, a couple of stories I want to talk to Charles Burton with uh, about, rather, a senior fellow, McDonald laurier Institute. One of them is in regard to uh, Canada accepting pro-democracy Hong Kong activists as refugees. And another interesting story, which we really haven't heard that much about here, but there was a... Uh, uh, a, a mansion north of Toronto in Markham, uh, the alleged mastermind of a lavish ma- uh, mansion casino raided by police, met twice with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And obviously this person, I shouldn't say obviously, but allegedly this person has ties uh, to communist China. To talk more about all of this and where we go from here, uh, let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. You know, everything's good down here in St. Catharines. So at first, let's talk about this mansion uh, north of Toronto that was uh, busted. This seems like an, a, an incredibly elaborate operation, and I understand the person involved is a land developer with chi- uh, ties to communist China and even the prime minister. What can you tell us about this? Well, it, you know, it's a sort of amazing pleasure palace. Uh, people invited in um, by invitation. You come in, and there's a, 
a stuffed polar bear rug, um, presumably the the product of illegal hunting in the north by some of the people who, um, you know, were invited to to come to this place. And next to the polar bear, there was the flag of the People's Republic of China. So there's no question that, uh, seeing as there was no other flag displayed, that this was a kind of Chinese communist uh, outpost-friendly place. Um, they had gambling, they had uh, fine cuisine, they had uh, top-quality liquor, and allegedly uh, beautiful trafficked women, uh, bedrooms, um, you know, you could stay there in a sort of bed-and-breakfast arrangement for criminals and, and people associated with the senior levels of Chinese communism who have a lot of money. I guess the main concern, uh, of course, is the relationship between the Prime Minister's fundraising operation, as it was, and the Chinese Communist Party, and the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and elements that are engaged in serious criminal activity, including, of course, the trafficking in fentanyl, which is such a scourge in our communities, including, of course, Hamilton and uh, down here in Niagara. The allegations here is this is a, uh, a money laundering uh, operation for fentanyl, for illegal uh, drugs. I mean, any accuracy there? Well, this is what we hear from the police. I, I think that uh, it's pretty clear what's been going on here. And essentially, um, you know, you're able to, to cash in your money through effectively illegal banking by transnational Chinese criminal operations. So, you know, you make your money in cash and fentanyl, you, you launder it through this kind of illegal casino. Apparently, it's not the only one in Toronto. It's just the, the nicest one of these illegal Mandarin-speaking casinos in the town for, you know, criminals lower down on the, uh, on the, uh, on the totem pole of, of criminal gangs. They had uh, lesser casinos. This one was for the top elite and, and senior Chinese communists and business people. The thing is, within this context, it's very hard to distinguish between a mafia boss and a respected captain of industry, as one might say, um, you know, to succeed at the higher levels of business in Chinese communist business networks, you really have to engage in tax evasion and bribery and and um, some pretty rough uh, criminal activity to to compete in that uh, in that sphere. And the fact that it's connected to the party, to um, diplomatic representation in Canada by the Chinese regime, and um, unfortunately, to fundraising by uh, senior Canadian politicians really makes us uh, become much more aware of the need for the government to give our RCMP the resources and the, and the legislative um, means to root this cancer out of Canadian society because it's spreading fast and we're not doing enough about it. Considering uh, the problems that Canada has in regard to the fentanyl uh, uh, problem, especially in British Columbia, uh, and, and the fact that the majority of this drug comes from China, why is this not raising red flags? How is this sort of operation allowed to happen on this scale? Well, that really is the question. You know, who is, uh, how do you follow the money on this kind of thing? Who is benefiting from our government's lack of effective action on this uh, drugs business, and why is it that we don't say to the Chinese regime, you know, we've you promised to cooperate with us to stem the flow of fentanyl out of these factories in southern China where it's produced. Uh, you know, we even we even gave the Chinese uh, police 
uh, financial support to facilitate investigations, which they were happy to take, but the fentanyl is clearly still flowing. But we could be inspecting every shipment from China extremely carefully to look for little envelopes of that noxious white powder, and that would be effective. Um, it would devastate Chinese trade if, if all of their shipments were delayed while our customs people go through them carefully. But I think that that would probably disincentive the the regime from not taking the action against the Chinese communist connected criminal gangs who are complicit in this awful, awful trade. Uh, considering how China has held the rest of the world over a barrel on all of this, I, I can't believe that the allies and such aren't coming together to fight this problem uh, on a united front, to use one of their phrases. Well, I think that there's uh, some notion that maybe if we get a new president in the United States that uh, we'll all be happier about collaborating under U.S. leadership to form a a common, uh, as you say, united, coordinated response to China so that China can't pick us off you know, bilaterally through the asymmetrical power relationship. But what we also need in Canada ahead of that, you know, because that may be a long time coming, is our government to take this more seriously and enact legislation like Australia's um, Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act to try and root the the corruption of, of Chinese criminal activity in our political system and among our elite so that governments will make the right decisions in the interests of Canada and obviously up to now we're not and you know you can see the you can see the fruit of it in um, rampant Chinese criminal activity and rampant uh, coercion of Chinese Canadians and persons of Tibetan and Uyghur uh, descent in Canada by agents of the Chinese state that that uh, our 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 police are doing essentially nothing about all right, let's uh, change gears here. We don't have much time left, and this is actually what we uh, called to talk to you about. But Canada accepting pro-democracy Hong Kong activists as refugees. Obviously, pro-democracy uh, activists in Hong Kong are under threat from uh, China, who's trying to slowly take over Hong Kong. Uh, is this the right thing to do? And should we ask the 300,000 Canadians that are there to come home? Well, I would say so. I mean, I think that there's a good prospect the Chinese regime will not recognize the Canadian citizenship of those Canadian passport holders in Hong Kong. There's a lot of precedents for that, you know, starting with the Hussein Jalil case, where it's a Canadian citizen who's been held in um, largely solitary confinement without us getting any consular access um, since 2007. This is a man from Burlington who has a Canadian passport. Chinese say, sorry, he's not Canadian. And so I, I could see the same thing going on with the 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong, and so I think we should tell them, that, you know, we can't guarantee their their consular rights unless uh, it, while they're in Hong Kong, because we don't trust the Chinese regime to respect our passport. I think with regard to the refugee matter, you know, we have a report of one case of a family that was deemed um, eligible for convention refugee status under uh, Canada's commitment to the UN uh, Convention on Refugees, there's some others who have made applications, but what we really ought to be doing is following the British and the Australians and extending safe harbor to anybody in Hong Kong who was active in the democracy movement, which would be a huge number of people. And if they want to come here to Canada, where you know so many of them have friends and family, we should be opening our doors. And we are not doing that. You know, The government says they're thinking about it. They've been thinking about it for some months, and the situation in Hong Kong gets more and more dangerous 
Hong Kong people have been excellent immigrants in our country and a great contributor to Canada's prosperity. And we really should be doing the right thing because we did endorse the Sino-British Declaration mm. on Hong Kong, suggesting that we had some we have some responsibility for China's blatant violation of its commitments to the people of Hong Kong. Charles Burton, senior fellow, Macdonald Laurier Institute, and talking about uh, accepting pro-democracy Hong Kong activists as refugees and that casino that was north of Toronto. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.